Hi, this is Scott Silkey. I'm the worship arts director here at New Life Church. We're excited that you are joining us today. I pray that today's message will encourage and inspire you to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around you. So we're back in our series on Jonah, and we're going to do chapter 2 and chapter 3 today because I was only given three weeks. So I got to squeeze these two chapters in because I don't want to leave the book incomplete. Um, That's as long as a leash that I was given. So if you have your Bibles, you can open to Jonah chapter 2, and we're going to flow right from chapter 2 into chapter 3. And uh, before we get into the word today, I just, I just want to uh, pray for you. Lord, we thank you for this day, and we thank you for everyone that has gathered here today. And Lord, we know that, you know, all these these things that happen in our lives and these things that happen in the world, some good, some bad, but we know that your sovereign hand is upon all of it. So I just pray this morning that your word would be alive and your Holy Spirit would be evident and that your presence um, would be near to our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. So last week it was called Down, Down, Down. This week is called Up, up, up. And the big idea of the message is actually a question. And this question is this. Can you be obedient to God's plan without loving God's people? And we're going to answer that question as we move through the sermon today. But let's start right away. Jonah chapter 2, verse 1. It says, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. So you remember last week, Jonah goes through all these struggles. He gets thrown overboard. He gets eaten by a fish. Maybe it was a whale. We're not sure. And I always thought this was one of the funniest lines in the whole Bible because it's like, what else was he supposed to do? Right? Like you get thrown over a boat. You get eaten by a whale. This is probably the most natural thing you would expect. And I don't even think you have to be much of like a religious person of any kind to all of a sudden now you're like a praying person. You're in the belly of a whale. Here's what I want to do first. This is the part of the story that's so famous, Jonah and the belly of the whale. And what I want to do is kind of disabuse you of this idea that this story is like fake or it's embellished in any way. This is the part of Jonah that crosses over from the Bible into myth, legend, or pop culture. Jonah gets eaten by this massive fish. So naturally, this couldn't happen. You couldn't imagine this happening. This story must be symbolic. It must be a fairy tale. But this might make you think of the movie Finding Nemo. Do you remember this movie? Dory and Marlin, they get eaten by a whale, and then this whale providentially brings them to Sydney Harbor, right where they need to be. It might make you think about Pinocchio, right? There's this disobedient boy on the run, They get into a whale's belly, and then, right, you see it. In the first Marvel's Avengers movie, Iron Man gets this idea to bring down this alien monster. He's going to fly right into the mouth of this alien. And before he does it, his computer co-pilot says, I don't think Jonah is a very good role model. Okay, so, like, we see this story everywhere. And it's unfortunate because the story of Jonah is usually represented in a way that it could not happen for real. And another way we see 
Jonah represented outside of the Bible is like there's these, there's this need to find like naturalistic explanations for how this could have happened. In chapter 83 of Moby Dick, the sailors discuss how unbelievable the story of Jonah really is. They discuss what kind of whale could have possibly eaten a man. Maybe it was a sperm whale. Maybe it was a right whale. They even talk about like the size of the esophagus of these different creatures. Was he in the mouth, the belly, whatever. Because this story could not possibly be true. So I want to show you a picture. If you put it up for me. Uh, next slide. So this guy here was actually eaten by a whale. I want to read you an article from the Cape Cod Times, June uh, was 2022. It says, Veter veteran lobster diver Michael Packard entered the water for his second dive of the day. In something truly biblical, Packard was swallowed whole by a humpback whale. All of a sudden, I felt this huge shove, and the next thing I knew, it was completely black, Packard recalled. I could sense I was moving, and I could feel the whale squeezing with the muscles in his mouth, he said. Initially, Packard thought he was inside a great white shark, but since he couldn't feel any of the teeth or suffered any obvious wounds, it dawned on him that he had been swallowed by a whale. I was completely inside. It was completely black. I thought to myself, there's no way I'm getting out of here. I'm done. I'm dead. Outfitted with scuba gear, he struggled, and the whale began shaking its head so he could tell Packard did not like that. He estimated he was in the whale for 30 to 40 seconds before the whale finally surfaced. I saw light, and he started throwing his head side to side. And the next thing I knew, I was out in the water again. So as amazing as Mr. Packard's story is, this isn't what happened to Jonah either. Right? Jonah was in the belly of the whale, it says, for three days and three nights. And when we read the story of Jonah, we, we see a narrative text. We don't see a story that's full of like symbolic language. We don't see a story that's full of like imagery that would make you think that this is not meant to be read literally. And in Matthew 12, when Jesus draws his comparison to Jonah, he says the sign of Jonah, and we don't get an idea in that text either that like we're dealing with parables or anything like that. So we don't need these naturalistic explanations to understand what happened to Jonah because what happened to Jonah was a miracle. And if God can raise the dead, he can certainly appoint some kind of great fish to keep a man safe for a few days. Jonah was on a providential timeout. God was giving Jonah some time to pray. So what I'm saying this morning is, I don't want you to miss out on the miracle. This story really happened. And Sinclair Ferguson writes about Jonah chapter 2 in his great commentary called Man Overboard. While it is commendable, that we should carefully examine the authenticity of such tales. There are reasons for caution as we do so. The most important is, of course, that too much discussion about the great fish can divert us from the real issue. This narrative is not really about the fish at all. Focus on the great fish, and we may lose sight of the great God. 
So Jonah prays in the belly of the fish because what else would you do? And that brings us to Jonah chapter 2, verse 2, where Jonah begins to pray. He says, I called to the Lord in my distress, and he answered me. I cried out for help from deep inside Sheol. You heard my voice. When you threw me into the depths, into the heart of the seas, the current overcame me. All of your breakers and your billows swept over me. So Jonah is all over the place here. On the one hand, he has turned his attention back to God. He's praying. That's good. But in verse 3 here, it says, when you threw me into the depths. God didn't throw Jonah into the depths. If you remember, it was the sailors that did that. God didn't cause all this trouble for Jonah. He brought it upon himself. And this is the classic, you did this to me, God, routine. I don't know about you, but I have done this routine where I blame my problems, my choices, and my sins on God. Like, couldn't you just help me out a little bit? And then Jonah continues on in verse 4. As I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look once more towards your holy temple. The water engulfed me up to the neck. The watery depths overcame me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. I sank to the foundations of the mountains. The earth's gates shut behind me forever. Then you raised my life from the pit, Lord my God. As my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you, to your holy temple. Those who cherish worthless idols abandon their faithful love. So Jonah's kind of doing this half-repentance. That's what I like to call it. And I don't know if you've ever done this, but like you put the blame on God, so it's something like this. It's like, God, I know I shouldn't have done that, but you know that guy's really a jerk. Like, I shouldn't have, God, I should have given more to this need. I should have given more to missions, but, you know, you didn't stop the muffler from falling off my car this week. Right? So we put some of the blame on God because we just won't own up to what we need to own up to. And oftentimes, the biggest obstacle to true repentance is our own pride. And that's what's going on with Jonah here. He knows he messed up, but he's not fully going to embrace it. And in verse 9, it says, But as for me, I will sacrifice to you with a voice of thanksgiving. I will fulfill what I have vowed. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And so as he wraps up this prayer in chapter 2, we get a glimpse of hope. He's praying, but we don't see a man who really knows that he did something wrong. Jonah offers a sacrifice of prayer. He remembers where his salvation comes from. He remembers his calling, and he remembers his vow. And it's at this point when God says, Jonah, your time out is over. Verse 10, then the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah is back on dry land. He has an opportunity to dust himself off and try again. Really, he's going to wipe like fish guts and bile off of himself and try again. But that brings us to chapter 3. And this is going to sound familiar from last week. It starts like this, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. So what I don't want you to forget is you, me, Jonah, we all serve a God of second chances. God is going to pursue us far more than we're ever going to pursue him. Verse 2. Get up, go to the great city of Nineveh, and preach the message that I tell you. So here we go again with the get up and go. Jonah, 
has a job to do. But this time he has a little bit of a different job. In chapter 1, God told Jonah, go to the great city and preach against it because their evil has come up before me. God told Jonah, you go to Nineveh and you preach against it. But here in chapter 3, God makes it even easier for him. He says, preach the message I tell you. No need for emphasis, no need for color commentary, no need for editorializing. Just literally tell them what I tell you. He couldn't be streamlining this process anymore for Jonah. So God tells Jonah, get up. In verse 3, Jonah got up, went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. God said, Jonah, get up. Jonah got up. Can you believe it? He was finally obedient. And the book of Jonah could have been so much shorter. Like chapter 1 and chapter 2 were almost unnecessary. If Jonah was obedient from the very start, he wouldn't have had to book a first-class ticket to Tarshish. He wouldn't have to get thrown over a boat. He wouldn't have to get eaten by a whale. He wouldn't have to wipe the fish guts off of himself. And that is the cost to disobedience. Because God doesn't pick the wrong people for his purposes. And so when we resist this calling on our lives, it's like walking into the wind, or we could walk with the wind. That choice is ours. And like I said last week, like you can go by land or you can go by whale, but like why would you make it harder on yourself? And Jonah ends up in Nineveh, but he did it the hard way. And that's when he's there, we pick up the story again, verse 4. Jonah set out on the first day of his walk in the city and proclaimed, In 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. Then the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least. So what a sermon to preach. Like if I just came up here and said, In 40 days, Enfield will be destroyed. And then I walk, I walk off the stage. That's like a real fire and brimstone sermon. And we don't know if this was the whole sermon or not, actually. It's probably a summary of it. But it doesn't really matter for our purposes today. Because what we read in the text here is on day one, something miraculous happened. So what is this miracle? It is a true miracle anytime, any person, anywhere, for any reason, believes in God. It's a miracle. Paul writes in Romans, there is no one who seeks God. So when we see people being revived, people believing, this is a miracle orchestrated by God through the preaching of his word by a message put on a prophet's heart. And we see the sackcloth and ash. That's kind of weird. That's an ancient way to mourn. But you see all the people were participating in this, this mourning process. The people didn't just repent here. They were so cut to the heart that they began to behave like a national tragedy had occurred here. It's amazing, really. And if you remember our theme verse for this whole series, it's Matthew 12, 39 through 41. It says, Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The man of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it 
because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. So this is where we're going to talk about what is this sign of Jonah. And there's some debate about it. Some people say one, some say the other. I say it's both. So Jonah was in the belly of the whale. And he was kind of made new again. And this should make us think of what Jesus is going to do with his resurrection. But we also see the sign of Jonah with the preaching of repentance. When Jesus preached, it was not unlike the sermon that Jonah preached. Get up. Go to the unbeliever. Tell them that sin is not okay. Get up. Go to unbelievers. Tell them God is aware of what we do down here. Get up. Tell people that repentance is the only way through all of this mess. Get up. Put your faith in God. So Jonah's preaching spreads through Nineveh like wildfire. And we see a revival in the land. And this news spread all the way to the king himself. Verse 6 says, When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his royal robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. The king got up. And when we hear the word of God, we should get up like the king. But the king doesn't act like Jonah, right? He was convicted by his duty to his people. And if you blink, you'll miss it, but the king's reaction here is amazing. He doesn't even have a name in this story. We don't know who he is. We could probably guess by like piecing together history what year this took place. But when we read these Bible stories, we know that God is the hero of every one of these stories. He's the catalyst of every story. He's the hero. But oftentimes we see like a little sub-hero emerge, like a minor hero, if you will. And I'm telling you, this king of Nineveh, he is that character. Because when the king hears the word of the Lord, he reacts in very distinct ways. It says the king got up from his throne. The king took off his robes of royalty. The king sat down in the ashes with his people. The king put aside all of his pomp in his circumstance. The king condescended down to the level of his people because he cares about them, because he loves them. And when we see this king acting this way, we actually get an image of Jesus here because that's what he did. We were talking about Operate Christmas Child, and when Advent comes, that's literally the miracle of Christmas. The virgin birth, okay, the bait, but like, could you imagine that the king of all kings took off his robe, take off his crown, to come down to be with his people? That's the most amazing thing. It's what a true king does. Because Jesus sits in those ashes with us. Matthew 23, 37 says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I want to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So the king doesn't just mourn. He does something about it. In the king of Nineveh, he issues a decree. By order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock, is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered with sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must turn from his evil ways and his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. 
he may turn from his burning anger so that we will not perish. So if you want to contextualize what this might look like in today's culture, it would look like this. The, the president um, says the flag must be at half-mast. He tells the entire nation at 6 p.m. Sunday evening, television's on, radio's on, maybe Twitter on. He calls for a day of national fasting and prayer and repentance. And could you imagine that? Just for a moment. You know that weird EAS test that we had last week? Everyone's phone buzzed, right? Imagine if that your phone buzzed and it said, get to your house of worship. Pray for revival in the land. We cannot do this without you, God. We're alone down here. Could you imagine what that impact would have today if world leaders today had the impact on their citizens like this king of Nineveh? He doesn't even have a name in this story. It's really amazing to me. Um, Abraham Lincoln at the um, at issued a, something called, uh, just because it's in my notes here, Proclamation 97. So a few months before the Civil War, the Senate asked President Lincoln to issue a day of fasting and prayer. So th this was like 150 years ago. Right? So this is, it would be a new thing, but it's not really a new thing. I want to read for you um, just a little bit of this because the first time I read it, it literally like, I, I thought it was fake. Um, just imagine for a moment, this isn't about party or politics, but whoever sits in that big chair, if they said this to you on a Sunday evening, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God in all the affairs of men and of nations has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation and where it is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by history that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. We have been the recipients of the choicest bounties of heaven, but we have forgotten God, intoxicated with unbroken success, and we have become too self-sufficient to feel the necessity of redeeming and preserving grace, too proud to pray to the God that made us. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins and pray for clemency and forgiveness. So I set apart this day, the 30th day of April, 1863, as a day of humiliation, fasting, and prayer. Abraham Lincoln, 30th day of March, A.D., 1863. So forget who said it or why. But a king who speaks like this and means it, that's what a political and cultural revival will look like. Human leadership at its best is submission to the will of God. Kings, presidents, prime ministers, they serve on God's authority. They owe their authority to God. Romans 13.1 says, Let everyone submit to the governing authorities, since there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are instituted by God. Political leaders serve you, the citizen, 
but they serve you on God's authority. And as uncomfortable as this may be at times, that's why we are supposed to pray for them. We are supposed to pray for them so that they never forget who they truly serve. Right? And we subject ourselves to their leadership up to the point where they ask us to do something against God's law. That's where we draw the line. But if they ask us to repent, we should. Jonah 3 verse 10 says, God saw their actions, that they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. So we can see what a national repentance can do. This is an amazing thing, because God's heart is not for destruction. It's for preservation. His desire is not for wrath, but forgiveness. God would rather give us grace than destroy us, but repentance is not a feeling. Repentance is not a state of mind. Repentance is a verb. Repentance is a plan of action. Repentance is something that you do. God tells us through his prophet Jeremiah in chapter 18, at one moment, I might announce concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will uproot, tear down, and destroy it. However, if that nation about which I have made the announcements turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the disaster I had planned to do with it. God tells us that if you turn from your wickedness and you embrace him, sometimes good things can happen. There's a way to, I don't want to say that we have like direct influence on God's sovereignty, but it says it right here. Turn and repent. But remember the question. Can you be obedient to God's plan without loving God's people? And the answer to that question is yes, kind of. Jonah was obedient to God. Jonah got up. He went to Nineveh. He said what he had to say. But what about Jonah's heart? Did Jonah have the same concern for the people of Nineveh that the king did? If Jonah really cared, would the text have read differently? Like it says he went in there for one day. Text says he had 40 days. He went there for a day. He like banged it out and went home. I think it says something about his heart. And this is where we get into a prophet greater than Jonah. Because Jesus really preached the same sermon that Jonah preached. It's fair to say that Jesus came preaching about God's wrath. John 3.36 the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So Jesus is clear the wrath of God is real. Jesus has preached the German, uh, German Jonah sermon before. Jesus came to preach to us, your soul is in danger. But what makes Jesus greater than Jonah is this. Not only was Jesus obedient to God, but Jesus loved God's people. Jesus was a prophet who wept over Jerusalem. He cared. His heart was affected by the outcome. Jesus was obedient to God while being emotionally invested in the outcome. And that is what Jonah doesn't get. Jonah's obedience was centered on himself. Like, what do I have to do to get God off my back, what's the bare minimum I have to do to obey God? But Jesus, we see something completely different. 
his obedience was centered around love. He said, not only will I do the will of my Father, but I will love his people. That's what makes Jesus different. That is what makes Jesus a greater prophet than Jonah could ever be. Because obedience with the love of God together, that's really the heart of the gospel. And we're going to end like this. John 15, 9 says this. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. And if that John 15 was at the end of Jonah's sermon, it would have looked like Jesus. So that's all I have for you today. Please remember that the wrath of God is real, but Jesus says we must love each other. It's not enough to just be obedient to God, even like getting saved, like, like that's great, but then what are you going to do? Jesus encourages us to remain in his love. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you've saved us from the wrath that we deserve. But Lord, we know that you care for us with a tender heart. And Lord, I pray that our obedience would be centered around a heart for you, a heart for God's people, and a heart for the people around us. So we give you this day and we give you our weeks in our lives. And we thank you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. I hope you enjoyed our podcast today. To find out more about New Life Church or to plan a visit, go to our website at discovernewlife.org.